We are at that time of year where we begin to sing and hear some of our favorite Christmas carols. We are also at that time of the year where often we turn uh, our attention to the incarnation of Christ, not this year. We are going to be continuing uh, to hear and learn of Christ and His work for His people, and later in the month we will turn to some text that deals specifically with the incarnation, but uh, here at the beginning of December, what a wonderful place to continue speaking of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The reason he has come and taken on flesh, to offer up that flesh and to take it up again, that he should be a man, uh, both God and man forever, uh, two natures in one body, seated at the right hand of the Father. So we will continue for a while uh, to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today we're studying verses 12 through 23, and as you see that, you may wonder if there's a uh, typo in the bulletin. There is not. Paul, in verse 23, is just getting ramped up. He's going to be talking about uh, the resurrection and what that means for God's people and then what it means for uh, the rule and reign of God's kingdom. And we are going to stop in the middle of that ramping up. And I understand uh, that that is right in the middle. In fact, if you have certain translations, they might even make verses 23 and 24 a single sentence. Now, we're going to stop at 23. We're going to come back and see some of this again, Lord willing, next week. Uh, But today, we want to see what the resurrection means for God's people. We're going to be looking at verse 12 to 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can find that on page 961, if you've not already. Before we go to 1 Corinthians 15, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. O God of glory and of grace, O God of resurrection power by the Spirit, We come to you as those, many of us, who have been raised to new life by the power of the Spirit, receiving in our mortal bodies new life through your work, having been baptized with Christ, participating in a death like his, and looking forward to the promise of life also with him. So, O Lord, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear and receive what you have for us today to turn our eyes to the glory of Jesus. Do this work in the hearts of your people. Use this, perhaps, to draw others to you for the first time, to give them new life, to raise them up from the dust of death, that they would rejoice in you. And so, O Lord, we come to you, wholly dependent upon your moving and your leading as we read your word. O bless this word as we read it. Bless our hearts as we receive it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ... We are of all people most 
to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. How essential is the resurrection to Christianity? We see a push toward minimalism. Lots of areas of life seems to be somewhat of a trend. Maybe it's a reaction against materialism we've imbibed for so long, but so many people are trying to strip away all the extemporaneous things and get back to the core of all sorts of areas of life. We see minimalism in the houses that we own. This is the tiny house movement. I don't know if you've seen it. People are selling their five-bedroom homes and buying 400 square feet they can put on a trailer and carry behind a truck wherever they want to go and stripping away all those extras. We've always been for minimalism in business. It goes by the name of efficiency. You can read books and go to seminars and learn how to pare away all of your extra tasks and and delegate whatever you don't need to be doing so that uh, you can focus on what really matters and be efficient. There's a trend toward minimalism in the tech that we use. Certain people are worried about uh, the effects of, of our cell phones in particular and carrying the internet around with you in your pocket all the time. And so uh, they're stripping those things away, getting rid of smartphones and beeps and apps and clicks and interruptions and distractions and going back to those little devices that can just make phone calls. There is this push for minimalism. Each one of those in, in different areas is an attempt to get rid of all the fluff, get down to the real core. So what if we were to do that with Christianity? There are lots of people who have tried to do exactly that throughout the history of the church, by the way. It is another trend that comes and goes, and probably at every time somewhere in the church all around the world, someone is thinking, what can I get rid of to get down to the core of what Christianity is supposed to be? And when that happens, there is a process of evaluation that goes on, and take all of Christian views and doctrines and practices, and you put them all under a microscope and you say, is this essential or non-essential? Do we need it or can we get rid of it? Doctrines like sin and salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit, missionary activity, evangelism, church structure and authority, worship style, sacraments, it all at one point or another goes on the chopping block and inevitably so does the resurrection. And the evaluation is made. Do we need it, or can we do away with it? Is it essential or non-essential? Now, there is a certain lure sometimes to thinking that we can get rid of the resurrection, at least that we can downplay it. That lure is all the more enticing if the kind of Christianity that you want is one that plays nice with modern sensibilities. You know, the kind of faith that won't make your neighbors think that you're some sort of non-rationalistic weirdo. Maybe even the kind of faith that will be more attractive to your neighbors. 
And so we think about what are the barriers that we can remove to make uh, Christianity and the gospel more attractive, more believable to our contemporary culture. Maybe if the resurrection wasn't so front and center, maybe if we didn't talk about this life after death all of the time, maybe others would want to know more about Jesus and listen to his teachings and follow his examples and what's really at stake if we get rid of the resurrection. What would we lose if we got rid of the resurrection? Well, folks, we would lose everything. Christianity loses everything if we get rid of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection in Christ, the gospel vanishes. We lose all of the hope and the good news that we proclaim in Jesus. This is the first thing Paul wants us to know in this passage. The teaching that runs from verse 12 through 19, that without the resurrection, the gospel is worthless. Without the resurrection, the gospel is worthless. He says in verse 12 that there are some people in Corinth who are denying that there is such a thing as a resurrection. Conceptually, it just it doesn't happen. Well, no big surprise there. That was the prevailing view in the ancient world, the, the Roman world at least. You know, we like to think that you know, those people back then, they were all very superstitious and they believed these sorts of things like the resurrection, but no, they didn't. In fact, most Greeks and Romans wanted nothing to do with the idea of a bodily resurrection, either because Greeks and Romans believed that when you were dead, you simply ceased to be. Annihilation, you, you just poof, you're gone. You can find all over the Mediterranean world the inscription on grave sites. It says, I was not, I was I am not, period. That's it. That's the way many believe that you simply cease to be. Now, there were many Greeks and Romans who believed that there was something after this life, and for those, they wanted nothing to do with the idea that you would somehow have a physical body. Don't forget that Greek and Roman philosophy was full of the idea that the body is bad, the spirit is good. Real freedom was to be delivered from your body and all of its limitations and all of its vices and those things that really just entrap who you actually are. So the idea that you would die and be freed from your body only perhaps to be reunited with the body potentially forever, that was horrific. They wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't believe in the resurrection and so of course there were Corinthian believers saying there was no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. We've seen for 15 chapters that one of the problems in Corinth is that they mixed far too much with the philosophies of the age and the values of the culture around them. Someone uh, more witty than I has said the problem with the church in Corinth is that there is too much Corinth in the church. And so, of course, they believe the same thing that was all around them. The resurrection, they said, is laughable, it's unthinkable, Maybe it's the kind of thing that our faith can do without. So Paul goes on to give the church in Corinth a list, a litany of the things that the church would lose if the resurrection were not true. Now this list has a lot in here, but it forms a cluster really, two clusters, uh, in verses 13 through 15, and then again in verses 16 through 18, and then there is a concluding sentence at the end in verse 19. Now, the first cluster shows us that without the resurrection, gospel preaching is empty. 
That's part of the worthlessness of the gospel, if the resurrection is not true, that gospel preaching is empty. Here's one of the problems. If you disbelieve in the resurrection, that you also have to disbelieve in the witness of the apostles, and you have to write off whatever they've been telling you as completely false. Because they have been going around, all of them, we saw in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. This is the message of all the apostles, that Christ died, was buried, was raised, and appeared. So if you need to disbelieve in the resurrection, you must reject the teaching of the apostles and say, well, their their preaching is in vain. It's a nothingness. Paul gives us this uh, tight little logical proof made of two premises and a conclusion. The second premise is implied. The first premise is, there is no resurrection from the dead. The second premise, well, Jesus died. So the conclusion must be, well, if there is no resurrection from the dead, and if Jesus died, then then Jesus has not been raised. And he says, if that is true, then our preaching is in vain. The word vain there actually is empty. It might look nice on the outside, might might be impressive or functional, but there's nothing inside. There's no substance to it. It's empty. And your mind goes back to your childhood and and your uncle or your aunt or someone who's not responsible for your nutritional intake on Easter gives you one of those huge chocolate rabbits. And there is whatever kind of competition between the manufacturers of chocolate rabbits that everybody's got to have the biggest one, so it's not enough to have a big chocolate rabbit or a large chocolate rabbit. It's a giant chocolate rabbit, and they're measuring them in feet. So there you are with your two-foot-tall chocolate rabbit, and it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. And you look at the ears, and just the ears will last you at least three days. And then down at the bottom of the package, you see that little word. Hollow. And at the first bite, the whole thing shatters, and it's gone within a day, and it's nothing but a big disappointment. That's what this word means. Our preaching is hollow if Jesus is not raised. It's empty. There's nothing inside. It might look good from the outside, but there's no substance here. Our preaching is empty if Jesus is not raised. John chapter 11, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's a gospel promise. And if Jesus is not raised, that is empty. All preaching of all such promises, according to the resurrection and the truth of Jesus Christ, is empty if he is not raised. Worse than that, says Paul, we are found to be misrepresenting God. Worse than that, he says. We're we're nothing but a a band of roving hucksters, peddlers who are selling you cheap goods at a high price through the power of deception. In verse 15, the New American Standard Bible gets it a little bit better. It's a little bit closer to the original. It says, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. There's an all or nothing choice here, folks. Jesus sent his apostles to be witnesses of his resurrection to the ends of the earth. And that's what they preached. That's what they proclaimed. And so we must conclude that their preaching was either genuine or it was intentionally deceptive. There is no middle ground. 
And if we deny the resurrection, we must deny the apostolic witness. And without the resurrection, gospel preaching is empty. Secondly, though, he says that without the resurrection, gospel faith is futile, or futile if you're English. I couldn't decide how to pronounce that this week. Verses 16 through 18, we, we see this here. And Paul rewinds his argument to that same logical proof. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus Christ is not raised. And if Jesus Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. Now, earlier, this word vain dealt with uh, the idea that there's no substance inside. That's not the point here. The point is powerlessness. Oh, it's real faith, all right. It's firm faith. Faith that grabs a hold of Jesus with both hands and a white-knuckle grip and will not let go. Faith that can move mountains. Faith that sees and believes everything that God has promised, yet if Jesus is not raised, that faith is powerless to deliver on its primary objective, that you should be free from your sin. Promised new life in Christ. Joy in the presence of the Lord. If Jesus is not raised, your sins remain like a filth and a stain that you cannot wash off. And you try to scrape under your nails and you rub your knuckles until they bleed and the stain is still there and you can't get rid of it. And if Jesus is not raised, your faith is powerless. Firm though it may be. That's what he wants us to know. Now here's a curious thing. What does the resurrection have to do with removing our sin? I thought Jesus died for our sins. Wasn't that what he said back in verse 3? Jesus died for our sins. He was crucified as our sacrifice. All our sin was laid on him. By his stripes we are healed. With his dying breath he declared it is finished. Yet Paul seems to say that if Jesus is not resurrected, somehow the transaction is incomplete and we are still in our sins and we're no better off. So what does the resurrection have to do with removing our sins? Why does he say that if the resurrection has not happened, we are still in our sins? Well, because the resurrection is necessary. Absolutely essential. We cannot do without it because the resurrection is proof and vindication of the righteousness of the one in whom we trust. It is proof before the watching world and before the throne of God that Jesus Christ is a righteous man, wholly righteous, perfect in every way, who gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners. You see, if Jesus himself were a sinner, his life and his death can be of no benefit to you because he died for himself. And if Jesus is not raised, that is proof that he deserved to die. Jesus is raised as vindication. It vindicates everything that he promised about sin and salvation and redemption and new life and all of these promises. When he was raised, it was all true. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 4, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. In the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated, and in the resurrection, we who believe are justified before the Father. You think about it this way. In Mark chapter 2, we read the story of a man who was paralyzed, but he had some friends who were very bold and very faithful. And so they brought this paralyzed man before Jesus, 
And there was a crowd, and so they had to dig through the roof of the house where Jesus was meeting with this crowd, and they let him down on his mat before Jesus, and they were very bold, and they believed that Jesus could heal him. And when Jesus saw their faith, he turned to the paralyzed man, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe not the response they were looking for. And then comes the skeptical hearts of the scribes who are sitting there, and they begin to grumble within themselves Who does this man think that he is? This man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. They were right. No one but God can remove the guilt of transgression and sin. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he turned to them. And to prove that the power of God was at work. It says, so that they would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralyzed man and says, get up. Grab your mat and go home. It was a miracle. It was vindication that what Jesus had said and promised was true. And he was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Proof, vindication of all the promises that he gave. Otherwise, says Paul, an unthinkable thought. If Jesus has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep in him have perished. The stress in the original is on in him. It is emphasized. United to Christ by faith, yet still in your sins. United to Christ by faith, but still bearing the penalty and the wrath due to, your, due to you for your rebellion against the Lord. And death brings destruction and perdition and damnation. It is unthinkable. It's another choice, isn't it? If we deny that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we deny the possibility of salvation. That's what's at stake. We lose everything if we lose the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, the gospel is worthless, and preaching is empty, and faith is futile, and Christians are pathetic. That's the summary in verse 19. Of all people, most to be pitied. Now, maybe you hear that verse, and that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to you, especially if your idea of Christianity is something that is socially advantageous. Historically respectable. A system of morals that will help you to live a better life and get by in the world. But what if you live in Corinth in the first century? What if you live in Corinth in the first century and the gospel to you is nothing but a call to renounce the acclaim of the world and to bear suffering and scorn and hatred and the potential loss of everything you have? What if you live in Somalia? Where believing in Jesus means that your own brothers put a target on your head because you have left Islam and brought scorn upon the family. Does that make sense now? What if all of that is true and the resurrection is not true? Christians are pathetic, pitiable. Of all people, most to be pitied if they have given up everything to follow Jesus with nothing but a promise that in this life they will face hardship and persecution. And if the resurrection is not true, Christians are pathetic. 
faith is futile and preaching is empty and the gospel is worthless without the resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Do you see it there? Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If you have a pen, underline that. If you have a believing heart, rejoice in it. If you have a friend or a neighbor, tell them. Jesus Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. It is the statement that gives power to the gospel. It is the difference between redemption and damnation. It is the truth that undoes the lie of the evil one. It is the joy of every believing heart that we sang about and sing about at Christmas time. It is a reminder that faith in Him is not wasted effort. In verses 12 through 19, Paul has been painting a bleak picture. Absolute destruction. But it's all hinged on seven ifs. Did you see them there? Now, if Christ is proclaimed, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ has not been raised, if it's true, if in this life only, but now the ifs are gone. They've been replaced by the truth of Jesus' resurrection, written by the hand of a man who saw him for himself and was called to be an ambassador of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he proclaims to you, and you hear it today, in fact, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and the gospel is not worthless. It is powerful and real and true. In the words of Samwise Gamgee, it means that all the sad things are going to come untrue. Because Jesus has not only been raised, but he's been raised as a promise. Verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you are familiar in the Old Testament, there are lots of festivals and feasts and celebrations. In Leviticus chapter 23, we read of two festivals that ought always to be kept in mind together in the Israelites as they came into the promised land. One of them was to mark the beginning of the harvest, and the other was to mark the end of the harvest. The one that marked the beginning of the harvest was called the feast, the celebration of first fruits. What happened at first fruits is that if you were a person who had some land and you had a crop, you would begin to gather your crop whenever it happened in the year. This wasn't a fixed festival. It, it revolved around what was happening in the land. You would begin to gather your crop, and you would take one sheaf of wheat, the very first sheaf, or uh, wheat, or barley, or emmer, or whatever it was that you gathered. You would take it to the priest, and you would hand it over to him. You'd also take all the things for a sin offering and all the accoutrement that went along with that, and the priest would hold on to it until one Sabbath had passed, and then on the first day of the week, ring a bell? Then on the first day of the week, the priest would take that sheaf of wheat, and it says he would wave it before the presence of the Lord and offer up that offering. Leviticus 23 says that it was a plea for acceptance. It was also a prayer of thanksgiving. It was also a reminder and a promise to the people that there was a harvest to come. You were just at the beginning of all these things. And there's a lot of work to be done, and there is labor between now and seven weeks from now when you celebrate the Feast of Weeks. What happens at the Feast of Weeks? You don't bring a sheaf of grain. You bring loaves of bread. 
not agriculture. You, you bring a finished product. Another prayer of thanksgiving that the Lord has been faithful, that what He promised, He has delivered. And they are connected. And you enter into a day of solemn rest, and nobody does any work. And Paul says, Jesus is our first fruit. And here you stand in the middle of these two things, in the Feast of Weeks, and that rest is coming, but there's an awful lot of work to be done before the harvest is over. So stand firm in the promise that the Lord has given to you. Jesus has been raised as our first fruit, as our promise, that he is faithful to all of these things that he said he would do. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, our hope is alive in him. That's the summary of the second big thing Paul wants us to see here. That since Jesus has been raised, our hope is alive in him. And we mentioned already that Jesus' resurrection was a vindication of the claims that he had been making. It was proof of, of God's power at work to break the chains of sin and to set his people free to righteousness. Well, now in verses 21, 22, Paul makes reference to Adam. There's no coincidence that he traces the resurrection all the way back to the fall in the garden. These also ought always to be united in our minds and in our understanding and our faith. In fact, I think this is one of the things that unbelieving, unbelieving hearts do not accept about death and resurrection. They don't dismiss it simply because it's irrational, not merely because it's unscientific, but there's a larger truth which they have denied. The connection between sin and judgment and death. And so we think, and they think, Death is natural. Come on, it's the most natural thing uh, in the whole world. It's just as natural as being born. You are born, and then you die, and I was not, and I was, and I am not. Come on. But death is not natural. Death is an intrusion. Death is a curse. Death is a penalty imposed upon the sin of our first representative. In the garden, Adam rebelled, and all humanity was implicated in his mutiny. This is the unwavering position of Scripture. Death is the result of iniquity. Death is the wages of sin. In Adam we have sinned. In Adam we must die. But Christ Jesus has undone the curse. Because the resurrection is not just conquering of the grave, but it is the conquering of sin, which wields the power of the grave. Take a look further in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has undone the curse of sin and death in his resurrection. Everyone who is in Adam must die, but everyone who is in Christ by faith will be made alive. Verse 23 begins to show us what the end will look like, and there's a promise here. That because Jesus is raised, our hope is alive in Him. 
and begins to show us what will happen at his second coming. Here we are beginning to celebrate his first advent, and Paul is pointing us to his second advent, his coming again. This is a pretty quick picture of what this all looks like. So, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 fills it out for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's what we ought to do with the truth of the resurrection and Jesus coming again. Not minimize it. Not to seek how to get around it or make it less of a burden or a barrier to our unbelieving neighbors and friends and family members. We ought to encourage one another with it. We ought to look at one another and speak that promise that those who are His, who belong to Him, will be raised with Him at His coming. In the Chronicles of Narnia, in the end of Prince Caspian, Peter and Susan, uh, those are the two of the eldest Pevensey children, Peter and Susan are given a private conversation with the lion. And when they return, Lucy is curious to know what it was all about. And she says, what was Aslan talking to you and Susan about this morning, asked Lucy. Said Peter, his face very solemn, I can't tell it to you all. There were things he wanted to say to Sue and me because we're not coming back to Narnia. Never, cried Edmund and Lucy in dismay. Oh, you two are, answered Peter. At least from what he said, I'm pretty sure he means you to get back someday, but not Sue and me. He says we're getting too old. This was published in October 1951. As all the children in England read these words, they knew this was a hint, wasn't it? This is a promise that the story was not over. There was more of an adventure yet to come. And sure enough, September 1952, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader was released, and again we find Edmund and Lucy together languishing in the insufferable company of their cousin Eustace. And they are drawn into the adventure, and the story starts all over again. What does Paul say to us? Jesus has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and this is a promise. There's more to come. The adventure is not over. And because Jesus is alive, our hope is alive in Him. Let us encourage one another with these words. Please pray with me. O Savior and Lord, great God and King, Creator, Sustainer, Conqueror of all things, You are immeasurably good and right and true. And we, Your people, are always in need of Your tender care. O encourage fainting hearts today by this truth that Christ has been raised from the dead, that hope in Him is not wasted effort, that you are coming again for those who are dead in Christ and those who will be left 
that we will always be with you to see your face and to rejoice in your glory. We will come now to a table where we get a foretaste of that. Encourage us with these words, we pray. If there are those in our midst who do not believe this, we pray that by your word and by the power of your spirit, you would give faith in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You would draw them to yourself, convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment, draw their eyes to Jesus Christ to proclaim, this is what I believe and this is where my hope is found in the one who has died and lives again. Oh Lord, would you work for the sake of your name and your glory, for the sake of the worship which you will put in us and draw out of our faltering lips and mouths. Oh Savior, work in us and encourage us by these words and this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.